Hey church, before I begin the sermon today, I want to just let you know what we're thinking when it comes to the pandemic and our current options for meeting and being community corporately and together. We've decided to bring children's ministry back this week, but we want to make very clear that this is something that we're trying, and those who are serving this week have been vaccinated for both the children's safety and for their own. But we also want to make known that we are trying new things and that this doesn't mean that children's ministry is back indefinitely like it was prior to the pandemic. We also want to let you know that the summer in, partic in particular, flexibility is still going to need to be something we value and attempt as there will be weeks we meet inside, possibly outside, and possibly only online. I know this isn't ideal, but we are in a season of hopefully coming out of the pandemic and finding some new normals. We're meeting inside this week with Mass, and some of the worship leaders will be leading without Mass, but be behind plexiglass shields, and some may choose to lead with Mass. I will choose to preach without my mask on, but behind the plexiglass, and will put it back on while not preaching. I know, again, this isn't ideal, and I know that not having consistency of some things will be hard for us, but I want to remind each of us that church is not a building, or a lawn, or even a playlist. It's a people. And we want to safely give people opportunities to commune and partner in the gospel together in a wide array of options as we all work towards seeing this infectious disease become less and less prevalent in our society. So know that sometimes we may be going too slow for some, and sometimes we may be going too fast for others, but we want to do our best to give people opportunities to experience corporate worship and the word to penetrate our hearts and give us opportunities to to put into practice what we are learning, all so that we can partner for the glory of God's gospel in Santa Clara City and County while making known that Jesus is alive. So that's the quick commercial or the disclaimer prior to the sermon. So let's jump into the sermon. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. We are continuing our freedom series this week. We began this series three weeks ago, and we talked about the freedom we have in Christ in the first week. Last week, Pastor Mike led us in freedom from idolatry, and this week we'll be covering the freedom that we have from sin because of Christ's sacrifice and saving nature. We talk a lot about sin at Church of the Valley, not because we are a Turner-Burn church. Scaring anyone to heaven isn't as effective as some might think, and it doesn't really work spiritually, but to point to the reality that our sin nature needs intervention, not from a cosmic do-gooder, but from a sacrificial lamb who stood in the gap to take the punishment that you and I deserved. I have one overarching theme for today's message, that our sin condition is one that needs godly intervention and payment, not white-knuckled attempts to sin less. I hope that we as a community can embrace this reality, not so we uh, will live however that we want, considering we know that we're forgiven, but so we can embrace the beauty of the grace given to us, so we can live in the freedom given to us because we're found in Christ. In order to talk about freedom from sin, we probably need to realize that it is not earned, it is or warranted, but it's due completely to God's beautiful kindness expressed in grace. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. Let me explain it this way. There was a car accident, and you and someone else had a car accident, if you hit the other person, or if someone hit you, generally what you would want to experience is justice. Someone hits your car, you want them to get justice. You want them to get what they deserve. Now, if you had the same accident except the rules were reversed and you hit the other person, you would want mercy from the other person. You would, to, you would want to not have to get what you deserve. 
Now, let's talk about grace. Let's imagine that the same thing happens. We have a car accident. We hit someone else's car, but that other person's car, it's God's car. Now, what kind of car would he drive? I have no idea. But let's imagine we hit his car. Well, we would want mercy. We would not want to get what we deserve and have to pay back the exorbitant amounts of money that it would cost to fix God's car. But more importantly, we understand that in Christ, we're given grace. So it would be like hitting God's car and then him coming to us and giving us a Ferrari. That's grace, getting what you do not deserve. Now, let me point you to a quote that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a early 20th century theologian, says. It's regarding grace, which I believe speaks as much to us today as it did close to 100 years ago when it was written. Here's what it says. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Then there's costly grace. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all of his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out an eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It is a grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and yet grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. So I want you to keep that in mind. I want that quote to be on your mind regarding cheap and costly grace because it is what will help us understand more of what our freedom from sin requires. So when we receive this costly grace, we then know that we have found freedom from our sin. So with that in mind, let's look at Romans and how Paul begins in chapter 8. Here's what he says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a statement that I don't know how many times I've pointed to for when someone around me confesses of a sin, is heartbreaking, heartbroken over their sin, and hurts for how their sin has affected others. But we can hear this verse one of two ways that aren't productive or spirit-led. Here's one way. We can hear there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus and assume that our sin is too much for the cross, which is discounting the most important moment of sacrifice in all of human history. So we don't really believe that our faith in Christ is enough or sufficient, which is discounting the power and the beauty of the gospel. Or we can hear it another way as, well, since I prayed a prayer or I grew up in the church, then me and God are good. And it doesn't matter what I do because Christ has already covered that and forgiven me of that. And that's what Paul addresses earlier in Romans chapter six, when he says this in verse one and two, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We 
are those who have died to sin. We can live in it any longer. So if we continue to sin, so grace may increase, Paul says that this isn't what people who have found freedom from sin do. It's not that you won't sin, it's that your heart and mind have changed towards your sin. So the argument that you can just keep sinning because God has got you, well, I think it's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. But Paul again in chapter 8 begins with therefore. So what is the therefore, therefore, you might ask? Well, looking back at what Paul was teaching and explaining in chapter 7, he seems to be making a case for the law and the effects of the law. And here's what he says earlier on in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For what I would have not known was coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law points out our ineffectiveness to keep it. And because of that, we not only are sinful, but we're proven sinful, which really is the first step of understanding the gospel. Now, I don't know what kind of books you like, and this isn't just because I'm a pastor, but if you are like, what should I be reading right now? Let me give you a recommendation. It's this book written many, many years ago. It's written by the Apostle Paul, known as the book of Romans. It's amazing. And it will help each of us understand more and more of how important understanding of our sinful nature and God's redemption really is. John Piper, a a pastor for many years, uh, describes the first seven chapters of Romans before we get to chapter eight. And he says it this way. Romans chapter one through seven lays it all out. I tried to sum it up last week, he says. Holy God, sinful man, coming wrath, perfect Savior, Jesus Christ crucified and risen, justification by faith, sanctification by faith. And now Paul sums up the message of Christianity in the great conclusion of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, in view of all of that, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the essence of Christianity. That's central, foundational message of God to the world This is what we announce. This is what we plead. This is what we lay down our lives to communicate to the nations and the neighborhoods. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The church being found in Christ Jesus is the most costly gift ever given to anyone ever. And it ought to be the most dear to each of us in our daily lives, in our priorities, in our dreams of the future, because our future is stamped with Christ crucified, resurrected, and exalted to the right hand of the Father until he returns to set everything right. So we stand forgiven. We stand justified and righteous in right standing without blame, without condemnation. Because of who? Jesus. And what he has accomplished, and by faith, by trusting Jesus, we are hidden with Christ. He grafts us into his perfect record, and we don't need to feel condemnation condemnation or shame because Christ has taken all of that on for us on the cross. And he stamped us, paid in full. But do we believe this? Or are we stuck listening to the lie that we can't be given any of this? We don't deserve it, but he gifts it to us anyway in Jesus, and it's known as grace. This justification or this lack of condemnation is a gift of God. He initiates and he gifts this so we can stand before him without condemnation. Let's continue in Romans 8 verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free 
from the law of sin and death. Jesus' work and his spirit indwelling us sets us free from what the law of sin and death owed us. We are no longer owed death and wrath for our sin because the Son has set us free. Sin and death is what all of us incur. All of us earn sin and death. And yet God in his grace not only gives us mercy to not give us what we deserve, but he gives us grace. He gives us what we do not deserve in Jesus. But feeling condemnation every time we think we've sinned is one of the things that stills a ton of a Christian's joy and it sterilizes the beauty and the power of what being found in Christ really means. Being found in Christ means we live this life playing with house money. It means we can't lose, not just because we are, we, we are living without an eternity without God, but we are getting to practice and experience what an eternity with God is like in this life. We live our lives loved, never abandoned, never without hope, never alone, and never forsaken. Being in Christ means our eternity is sealed with the Holy Spirit, and our lives are marked with Him, led by Him, to point to the glory of God and the saving nature of His Son. Look at the first part of Romans 8, verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. God did not make a mistake by giving man law and man not being able to keep the law. God gave the law to expose man's incapability to keep it and our desperate need for a savior. We want to do things ourselves, don't we? We want to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, be an army of one, take credit for our abilities and not think that we ever need help. Well, in the gospel, we are deficient. And our culture and our human nature is to reject the idea that we're deficient, which is the beginning of rejecting the gospel. We don't think there is a problem, we'll never get help. And even if we admit to the problem, we'd prefer to comb over it, ignore it, or attempt to fix it ourselves than ever ask for help. I have a confession to make. I'm not very mechanically inclined, like at all. My father never showed me how to change my own oil or instill in me the abilities that many young men grow up with and learning from their fathers. And I don't want to just blame my dad for this as I live in a culture that has a YouTube video for absolutely everything, but I've just never been someone who enjoyed getting their hands dirty. Because of this, I have to ask for help a lot, which isn't the best thing for my pride or my manhood. But I am grateful for friends like Keith and Kyle and Ray and my cousin David who never shame me or even make fun of me, at least to my face, but are available to me to help with the difficult and easy stuff. And sometimes I even learn a bit about the project as a helper in some of the cases. Here's my point. I'd rather do the things that I have to ask them for help myself. I'd rather be an army of one. I'd rather be able to say, I don't need help. I got this. But both in mechanical and electrical issues, and honestly, especially in spiritual issues, I'm pretty useless. I can't just fix myself. I can't just stop sinning. I need intervention, and not just from Keith or Kyle or Ray or David. I need God who loved me while I was at my worst and gifted me his righteousness. So I no longer am defined by my sin, but I am identified in the Son. So does that mean we don't attempt to keep the law because we can't? No. 
It means we don't attempt to justify ourselves by how good or bad we keep the law, but we praise our God that the Son justifies, the Spirit sanctifies, and the Father will one day glorify each of us as we are hidden with Jesus. Let's look towards verse 3, the second part, and verse 4 of Romans 8. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Our flesh, our humanness, is not what we find salvation in. We can't. We will not and should not attempt to work our way to God, but receive the fact that God worked his way to us. In taking on earthly flesh, growing up, being tempted, not sinning, by not only not doing anything wrong, but by doing everything right, through sacrificing himself as the perfect lamb, and by being raised from the dead, defeating sin and death for those who would look to Jesus as their sole means of justification. So how is the righteous requirement possibly met in us? We can't do anything on our own to be righteous. But yet when the obedience of Christ, his work, his earning is received by us, we have fulfilled the law. Not because we were good enough or smart enough or because doggone it, people like us, but because God's grace is gifted to us, we receive all the benefits of Christ's accomplishments through his earthly ministry applied to our account. When I was Uh, on staff at a church. I was an interim pastor years ago, and it was a church that really prided themselves in in how serious they were about the Bible. And one of the first weeks I was preaching there, I got up. They didn't really know me very well. They weren't really sure because I would use different references that either they didn't understand or they thought were a little too worldly. And I remember I got up, and what I said to them was, you know, uh, we are saved by works. And you literally could hear a gasp you heard gasps of people going, oh my gosh, he's a heretic. And I said, we are saved by work, Christ's work on the cross and through the resurrection. And you heard this group of people go, oh. And the reality is that we can only be made righteous and right because of what Christ has accomplished, not because of what we can do at all. I once read about a small boy who was consistently late coming home from school. His parents warned him one day that he must be home on time that afternoon, but nevertheless, he arrived later than ever. His mother went to him at the door and said nothing. At dinner that night, the boy looked at his plate. There was a slice of bread and a glass of water. He looked at his father's full plate and then at his father, but his father remained silent and the boy was crushed. The father waited for the full impact to sink in, then quietly took the boy's plate and placed it in front of himself. He took his own plate of meat and potatoes and put it in front of the boy and smiled at his son. When that boy grew to be a man, he said, all my life, I've known what God is like by what my father did that night. It's known as the great exchange, that Christ got what we deserved and we get what he deserves. The great exchange doesn't just mean that Jesus died and we get to go to heaven. It means that everything that Jesus earned we have been gifted as well. Our righteousness, our right standing, our salvation, our holiness, our relationship, all of that is a gift from God through Jesus and granted continuously to us through the Holy Spirit. So have you ever had a broken relationship 
where you knew that you offended the other party, and even though you were sorry, you didn't know if that person or those people had forgiven you? How did you act around that person? You probably walked on eggshells. You were probably very tentative around that person because you didn't know where you stood with them. Being found in Christ and freedom from your sin means that you do not have to walk on eggshells around God. You live forgiven, not because you earned that somehow, but because God so graciously gifted that to you. And your deposit of your guarantee is in the Holy Spirit who indwells you. Being free from sin is actually an active belief. Here's what I mean by that, that when you've experienced freedom from sin, you have experienced the freedom to own your sin and to confess to it. One thing I know about people attempting to justify themselves is that keeping their sin hidden and out of reach of people so they can see them as more flawless than they actually are is a telltale sign of someone who is not really free from sin. So don't take this where it doesn't need to go. That doesn't mean you walk up and down the street shouting your sins, but it does mean that you have trusted individuals within your life that you can confide in because that sin should not have power over you to isolate you or make you ashamed, but it should be something that you can confess and find victory in as others walk with you. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 9-10, through 10, the apostle whom Jesus loves, the disciple whom Jesus loves, says it this way, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and the word is not in us. So who does the apostle John mean when he's speaking about confessing your sins? To whom shall you confess them to? Well, as our staff talked about this very passage this week, I believe an argument can be made for both that you should confess them to God and to others. But I told the staff what I'm about to tell you. Whichever is harder for you, that's who you should probably confess it to also. Confession and dependence upon Christ in our right standing with God and living in the Spirit daily is something that we have the ability to do through the gift of God's only Son being our righteousness. We can find freedom from sin and the effects it has over us. And being free from sin is about receiving this atonement or payment that Jesus has made on your behalf, being indwelled with the Spirit of God and living by the Spirit rather than being dominated by the flesh. And it isn't like any of this is at all natural. It's supernatural. And we as a church body, as other believers who love and trust Christ for our justification, who live by the Spirit in our sanctification and look forward to an eternity with God in our glorification, one of the ways we can be reminded of our freedom from sin is to practice what Jesus told his disciples to do, which was to partake in communion. Communion is the symbol and representation of what Christ did for his followers by trading his life for ours where he gave up his body, which is represented by the bread, and shed his blood, which is represented by the wine or the juice. We do this because Jesus said in Luke 22, verse 19, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying this, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And we do this out of obedience to our God but we also benefit by practicing this ordinance because at least for me, it reminds me and it slows me down to once again, reflect on the cost that it took to pay off my sin and your sin and all of our sin 
so that we could be made righteous, so we could be declared innocent before our holy and perfect God, so that we can have freedom from sin. Not that maybe if we are good enough, but because we're trusting Christ's sacrifice as sufficient, we are released from the bondage of sin and death. That's what communion means to me, to reflect on the cost of what it, well, what it costs to pay for my sin. So please take a piece of bread or something of substance and grab something of some type of drink. And here's the thing about both of these things, and you can pause this video. The, the type of elements do not matter. What matters is the heart behind the action, which I pray for each of us, that we don't do this out of duty or attempting to justify ourselves, but out of devotion and love for God who traded his life for ours. So I'll ask you to grab whatever substance you grabbed, what type of bread, what type of uh, edible food that you have, which represents Christ's body. And remember what he gave up so you and I could have access to God. Would you take, partake with me? Now, would you please take the drink, whatever type of drink that you grabbed, it represents the blood that Jesus shed on the cross so that yours and my sins could be forgiven and we could have freedom from the results of our sin. Would you partake with me? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity today to open up your word. And I thank you, Lord, that your word reads us as much, if not more, than as we read your word. God, I pray that as we even take communion, that it won't be something that we just do flippantly, but we do it because it'll pause us, it'll slow us down, it'll remind us of the reality that your death on the cross cost you so much for the Father and the Son for the first time in all of human history and the only time in all of human history, the Father and Son were disconnected. God, thank you for what you did for us. Thank you for the great exchange. Thank you that we've been made right because of what you've accomplished and what you've done. Lord, I pray for the people listening. I pray, God, for whatever offering is given, that you would use it for the glory of your name, that men, women, and children would come into relationship with you through the work of your people at Church of the Valley. God, thank you that you're at work amongst us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.